Hello, and welcome back to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I'm delighted to have you here with me for episode 25 of this film and entertainment industry podcast. I actually didn't even realize I was up to episode 25 already. I've just been chugging along, talking about a lot of movies, so no benchmark episode, no top five lists, nothing special for this episode. I'm just going to be talking about movies, as I always do. I have six movies I'm going to be talking about today, which is really exciting. Three new releases in theaters and three old releases. Make sure you follow me on my socials, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd. Getting back into the swing of it with posting. While it may not be as many clips from episodes as I hope to post, I'm posting industry-related news, trailers, adding stuff to my story. So be sure you follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd. Those are the two big ones where I'm most active. Instagram is where you can get film and entertainment industry news from me. And Letterboxd is where you can see what movies I'm watching and get short, quick reviews and my rating out of five stars. I love Letterboxd. I love adding stuff to my story on Instagram. I'll try to keep doing that more and more. So follow me at Sidekick Critic. Last episode, I told you all about the Writers Guild and their contract details, and I ended my strike talk by giving a brief update on where the actors are at. And the last thing I believe I said was that I was feeling cautiously optimistic about the actor strike. Today is a much different story. Uh, yesterday, on Wednesday, the Actors Guild and the studios met for what was the fourth time in two weeks, I believe. And things did not go well. Talks have broken down between the two sides. Uh, SAG-AFTRA put out a statement afterwards late last night saying, We have negotiated in good faith, despite the fact that last week they presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than what they proposed before the strike began. That is quite the statement, and it's really very eye-opening into where the negotiations are at and that things are very far apart between both sides. I was right to be cautious about my optimism, but my optimism clearly was entirely misplaced. The SAG statement would go on to say that the studios are using bully tactics to sow discourse between negotiators and members. They said the studios did this to the Writers Guild, and we did see that where they were releasing details of their offers that were misleading and misguided as they hope to turn members against the executive committees that are negotiating these deals. With When we look at the actor's strike in comparison to the writer's strike, for the writers in August they had met with the studios and things broke down, things still seemed far apart. Then come the end of September, they met again and they're able to strike a deal. If the actors are following the same timeline, it may not be until early to mid-November that they even meet again. The sides are very far apart. The Actors Guild is saying that the studios are overinflating how much the revenue sharing will cost, are still making absurd demands uh, regarding AI and protecting performers' likeness. It's There is a massive gap between these two sides, and all cautious optimism is out the window now, and it's a strong skepticism of when is this deal going to be done. Could this go into 2024? Of course, I am bumped. I love following the industry and I love seeing the red carpet for premieres and seeing the press junket for stars talking about their movies and hearing from them. And it is unfortunate to not hear about this, but as always, 
the actors need to stay strong and they need to know the goodwill of the people is still with them. I fully support the unions no matter what, and I'll continue to support them no matter how long the strike goes on, even if movies get delayed, and that just is what it is. It's Unions have to stick together. They have to fight for what they believe in against these massive corporate conglomerates who are throwing their weight around and using their money to drag the unions through the press, essentially. So don't believe everything you see that talks about the negotiations. Only really believe what you get directly from the union as they're speaking to their members as a whole when they put out a statement. So they will not be lying there. And then also industry-related news has to be taken with a grain of salt. I see tons of posts about so-and-so being cast in a movie. And if it's a movie that is being produced or developed by one of these big companies that is struck, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt because actors are not agreeing to appear in anything from these big companies right now. Which means industry news is going to be slowing down. I'll have to be really digging to find what I might talk about for the industry over the next two months. Because nothing is coming from the actor's side. They are not doing work. There may be some news from writing and what is starting pre-development. But the actor strike is really what's going to be slowing down the industry for at least the next month, I think. But in the meantime, there are still a bunch of movies. I've said it once. I've said it a million times. AMC's A-List is the best membership subscription on the market without a doubt. Uh, Lately, we've been running out of... Uh, reservations to make and not being able to see all the movies you want to see. It's very exciting. It's with a lot of movies being delayed and especially larger movies, it's encouraging me to go see smaller movies, more indie movies, which is great. And it's movies I would not normally be seeing in theaters or I'd wait to see or just would never watch. It's all because of the A-list. The strike has something to do with it as those are the movies being more highlighted right now, but It's all the A-list being able to see three movies in a week. And I mentioned running out of reservations. Your reservations reset every Friday. So when I want to see a new movie on a Friday night, we'll go see it. Typically then a Sunday night, late afternoon movie will happen because it's a perfect Sunday activity. And then I have one movie for the rest of the week. And it's becoming easier and easier to find things I want to watch because I'm learning that no matter what movie it is, I can typically enjoy myself. I think of the... I believe I'm at 54 movies on the year. Of those 54 movies, there's only been five I haven't enjoyed at most that I genuinely said I didn't like this. I didn't enjoy my time. So when there's 49 movies that I can take some kind of enjoyment for, this is so worth it. It pays itself over multiple times every single month. Highly recommend getting AMCA list if you have any want to see two movies in a month. It's so worth it. You don't pay extra to see it in premium formats like Dolby or IMAX. You get rewards. This is essentially a free ad for the A-list because I have never had a better membership ever. It is truly the best. But let's go on to talking about movies because that's what this is. It's a movie podcast. It's a movie review podcast. And like I said, I have six movies I'm excited to talk about today. The first movie I'm going to talk about is Black Swan. So Black Swan tells the story of a ballet dancer who is really putting herself through the ringer to be the lead in this ballet. And it's from uh, director Darren Aronofsky. I've only seen two of his movies, but he is a truly brutal filmmaker. Uh, Black Swan is very similar to The Whale from last year, which uh, contains some really 
just horrendous bodily horror, I think is the best way to describe it. It can be triggering and hard to sit through at times, but it makes for what's a really good movie that you may never want to watch again because it's just too well done. Specifically, I'm looking at Black Swan. One thing I really liked was the ending. I did not see the ending for this movie coming at all. Throughout the movie, I kept trying to predict and theorize in my own head of where I thought it was going. And if you've seen Fight Club, you know what that ending is. I really thought it was going to go that route, and it didn't, and it threw me for a loop, which I loved. I love when an ending catches me off guard. And with this being a ballet movie, another thing that really stood out while I was still watching the movie was the score. And a big part of every ballet is the music. So with a movie about a ballet, you have to nail the music, and Black Swan absolutely did. I I don't think I can say enough good things about this movie, despite the fact that I don't think I'll ever rewatch it because it is a hard movie to watch because of how well done and visceral it is. The movie was nominated for five Oscars, and Natalie Portman, the star of the movie, did win Best Lead Actress for her role. She's iconic in this. It's no surprise to me she won Best Actress. What a performance from her. And while her performance is the one that gets remembered when we look back on Black Swan, I also want to shout out Vincent Cassell, who played the predatory director, Thomas Leroy. He was incredible and disturbing and is such a great character actor. I personally know him from Ocean's 12. Um, I believe he was the Black Fox was his thief nickname in that movie. Um, he is a great actor. I, I know I've seen him in other things. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I've loved him every time I've seen him in a movie. Black Swan is, if you've seen Whiplash or if you know about Whiplash or The Whale, the movie is kind of a mix. It takes the best, best aspects of both. And I mean best as in not most enjoyable, but in the most well-executed aspects of those two movies and combines them into one truly great movie. From The Whale, it gets that bodily horror I talked about. And from Whiplash, it gets that unhealthy desire to please and live up to your mentor's expectations. And Darren Aronofsky built a wonderful movie. Black Swan has been on my watch list for years. I've heard about it so many times and it has lived up to the hype. I have to say, I wish I could have seen this in theaters because it feels like it would have really enveloped me that much more and probably would have bumped the rating up. It would be a great theater movie. If you haven't seen it, 100% worth the watch in my opinion. The Black Swan's going to get an 8.8 out of 10. I, I truly thought this movie was fantastic. Okay, moving on. My next review, here's my review for Coco. Disney re-released Coco along with numerous other movies throughout the last few months and next couple months for their 100th anniversary. Coco is actually one I never saw, which was always a bummer because I've heard it's incredible. And let me tell you, it really, really is. It's in the conversation for the best Pixar movie, I think. And it will 100% be in my top five for best animated movie now. It probably pushes out maybe Inside Out, uh, maybe Moana. I, I think there's no doubt of how great this movie is. One of the heavy themes in this movie is family and a elder, the elder generation moving on and forgetting. And as I've talked about before on this podcast, I believe, that strikes a chord with me. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. She passed away 
earlier this year. And anytime a movie touches on subjects like that, it really hits me in the heart and hits me at home is I saw firsthand the effect a disease like that can have on a person and the effect it can have on the people in their lives and how hard it was for my mother while her mother was going through Alzheimer's and how just she wasn't the same person anymore. They forget who they are. And Coco really nails that. It hits it right on its head and it's just perfect. The movie got me to tear up. I am so incredibly happy that this was re-released in theaters and I'm so incredibly happy that I got to see it in theaters. I think sometimes animated movies can be pushed aside as kids movies and for some that may be the case but for so many more they have adult themes that the kids can enjoy the music, they can have a good time, they can take in the message of family and what that means subconsciously but as an adult you consciously notice those themes and you can really appreciate what it means and I will never knock an animated movie just for being animated or for having childish moments I think sometimes you have to do that that's what makes the movie a commercial success but something like Coco is a massive critical success because of the themes and the story it tells Coco is like I said in my top five animated movies now I will be re-watching it again at some point in my life because it was just that good the music was great the animation was gorgeous. I have truly nothing bad to say about Coco. My rating for Coco, a 9.2 out of 10. Anything that's above a 9 out of 10 is fantastic. I honestly want to go through every movie I've watched and give it my 10 point rating because I'm very curious where everything falls. I it's interesting. There's a lot of different rating systems I use. On this podcast, I use a decimal of 7.5, a number point whatever out of 10. That feels most accurate to me for how I can rate movies comparatively to each other. But then, like I said, I used Letterboxd, which is a star system, and it allows you to do half stars, but that's much more limiting, and I rate the movies a little bit differently there. Abby, my fiance, and I have a spreadsheet where we keep track of the movies we see in theaters, and we rate them on there, which is just a solid number out of 10. And then you have someone like my friend Adam, who after the last movie we saw together, he has now gone to three decimal points. Every rating system means something different and is relative. The score you give a movie is relative to that actual system. But in my system, the one I use the most, which is for this podcast, anything above a 9 out of 10 is truly an excellent movie. And Coco is excellent. If you have not seen it, go watch this movie. It is truly a perfect animated movie. Moving on, my next review, uh, I'm going to talk about The Circle. So The Circle is the story of this woman played by Emma Watson who starts working at this massive global con conglomerate, which is almost a mix of Google, Facebook, and Apple combined into one company. I've seen this movie before. This was a rewatch for me. And this time, having seen the story, I watched it much more critically, critically, and it's a very interesting movie to watch through that lens. At times, it's this terrific psychological dystopian thriller that really showcases the damages that social media could potentially have on our society as its influence grows ever increasing. But at times, it 
takes that damage and influence and as it grows and brings it to an outlandish level that is a little bit too far-fetched for me. I think the question that needs to be asked when you watch that and think of those ideas that are a little outlandish are, is it really too far-fetched? When is the actual breaking point in society that people stop using social media or stop going with the flow with all these new innovations or whatever the companies want to call it and stop integrating technology into their lives more and more? When I think about it from that lens, I think, are we getting to that point where a lot of the younger generation uses social media in a much different way? They're much less reliant on it, but they use it solely for a really close circle of friends. They're not really posting to a mass group for everyone to see all the time. It's more stories and whatnot. Is that signifying a change or are we still just taking technology and more and more we're now there's cameras in our houses so we can see our pets or our children. There's cameras at our doors. We have multiple devices. We're connected all the time. You can track all your friends and family. Where's that line that it becomes too much? It's the fact that now you can track a family member 24 hours a day with iPhones and find my iPhone. It's becoming a more common thing. When, when I was a kid, I didn't even have a cell phone. If I was at a friend's house, my mom would have to call that house to get to me. Or you'd have to make a plan to be picked up at a certain time. And if I was doing something nefarious, I would have to hope for the best. I wouldn't be able to see where they were versus now. It's a really interesting dynamic is all I'm trying to get at. And I think the circle really does a great job of making me think about that. This was a nice long tangent. I just went on about technology in my personal life solely from one movie. And back to the story of the movie, I think, What's most interesting to me about the story is really the end. And May's, the, May is the main character, her choice at the end of the movie where she chooses a path of vengeance, for lack of a better term. Rather than taking what she experienced and learned and stepping away and coming out for a better person, she chose to bring her trauma and what happened to her to other people and to those responsible for what happened to her. And I think that's a really interesting character choice. I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't like it. This time around, I liked it a little bit better. It kind of felt more apt for how technology influenced the decision and made it feel as though that was the right decision. John Boyega's in this movie, and I would have liked to see a lot more out of his character and his character story. It could probably be cut out entirely realistically, but he was still good. Emma Watson really is great. Tom Hanks always electric on the screen. I love him. The Circle, all in all, is a really enjoyable suspense movie. I think it didn't get enough recognition when it came out, but it's very indicative of the effect technology is already having on our society. It's worth a watch at home if you have not seen it. The Circle is going to get a 7.7 out of 10. All right, we are moving on. That's the last of my uh, old movie reviews today, my throwback movies, whatever you want to call it. All of those have come out in the last 15 years, so I don't know if any of them are really throwback per se, but they're not a new release. Now we're on to the new releases. My first one today, here's my review for Dumb Money. Dumb Money tells the story of the craziness that was the GameStop stock blowing up along with the influence Reddit and Robinhood had on that whole debacle. And 
this movie feels as though it is made for a very specific audience because of how impactful Reddit is on the story. That is really crucial to, I think, the enjoyment of this movie. I was someone who was on Reddit at the time and is still on Reddit. So I got a lot of the Reddit related humor and story of this movie. And for someone who wasn't or doesn't get that, such as who I saw it with, Abby, a lot of the jokes and humor around that kind of fall flat, I think, which is interesting. And maybe the movie is made for the millions of people who are on Reddit and saw this whole scenario unfold in real time. But I, I think critically, the movie should have not made that choice. It should have leaned less into the Reddit aspect, even though Reddit was such a major aspect of the situation. That said, the movie was very informative. Both of us said we felt we learned about the stock market as a result of this movie and came out of it with more knowledge. It was had some good laughs, Reddit or non-Reddit. It did make us laugh at multiple times, me so me more so because of uh, what I already understood. And it did tell an interesting story, though it maybe had too many different characters in their own stories. It was just kind of missing that it factor. When you look at the money-related historical dramatizations, such as The Big Short, The Social Network, or even Air, I feel like this just falls flat in comparison to them. All those are great movies that elevate the story. I don't think the money really elevates the story in any way, though I will say Paul Dano is fantastic. I love Paul Dano and everything he's in. This is no exception. As I finished that sentence, I kind of realized I say that about every actor that's a star in a movie. It's not true, but when I watch a movie like this, I'm reminded of how good of an actor Paul Dano is and how much I enjoy him on the big screen. Don't get me wrong. I did enjoy Dumb Money. Uh, I think it's a very interesting story. If you only peripherally heard about the GameStop stock blowing up and didn't really understand it, this is absolutely worth a watch, but I think it's an at-home watch. I, I Especially if you're not an A-list member, nothing about this really screams you have to go see it in theaters to me. But I do think you should see it to learn more about what went down with that situation and especially Robin Hood's influence because that's where I didn't understand a lot of it in this movie taught me quite a bit. All said and done, Dumb Money is going to get a 6.8 out of 10 from me. One of those movies that I'm not going to remember and look back on very much, but is worth a watch in the end. Okay, moving on, here's my review for She Came to Me. This movie tells the story of an opera composer who has a creative block and he sets out into the world looking for inspiration when he meets a woman and has an affair. This review may be rather short because there's it's hard to really talk about this movie at length, I think, but I loved it, let me say. It stars Peter Dinklage and Hathaway Marissa Tomei. The three of them are fantastic. They build very real, flawed characters that are easy to love almost for their own specific reasons. Um, I love all three of them and Hathaway specifically. I'm doing again what I just talked about with Paul Dano. Uh, I love each of those actors for different reasons. Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones. Marissa Tomei starts way back with my cousin Vinny and continues to her as Aunt May in the MCU. And then Anne Hathaway, countless movies. I've 
Princess Diaries is the beginning of it. How can you not love her in Princess Diaries? But their characters are great. And they build these a number of moments that are so absurd and outlandish. They make you truly laugh out loud. I, I Myself and those I saw it with just agreed this was a movie that, while it's not blowing us away, it has that it factor that just really makes you enjoy it. And sometimes that's those are some of the best movies and most enjoyable movies. You don't know why. You don't have that much to say about it afterwards, but it just has that one thing, that intangible element that makes you truly enjoy it to a extra level. I think this movie's well worth a home watch. I think it's very indicative of a true A-list movie in that you don't need to pay to see it in theaters. When it's available on some streaming service down the line, it's maybe worth a month of that streaming service and watch whatever else is on there. Or if you have it, throw it on on a random night. It's There's nothing wrong with the movie being like that. I, I did see it in theaters because of my A-list. Unfortunately, our theater kind of sucked. They, people didn't laugh when we laughed. We laughed quite a bit. Everyone else was kind of quiet. It's kind of a dull audience. Sometimes laughing together really adds to it or reacting to a movie together adds to it. And this movie didn't quite get that, unfortunately. But all said and done, she came to me getting it straight up flat, 8 out of 10. I really did enjoy this when all is said and done. Okay. I have one more new release to talk about today. Here's my review for The Creator. This movie tells the story of a war between mankind and AI. And one man, played by John David Washington, is recruited to hunt down the creator of AI and the weapon they created that could potentially end the war in AI's favor. I think if I had to boil this movie down to one word, it would be potential. This had the potential to be an Avatar-level epic that would be canonized amongst the greatest sci-fi films of all time. That may be some really strong language, but that was my initial thought coming out of the movie, that it had potential and wasted it. Where did it succeed? Because I wouldn't say that if it didn't succeed at some things. It most succeeded at its technical aspects that were truly marvelous and actually blew me away at multiple points. The movie's from director Gareth Edwards. He also write the movie, wrote the movie and he, he did Rogue One and he very clearly understands sci-fi and how to create a good world, a good foundation of a story and how to manage the scale of that. The cinematography is from Greg Frazier, who worked with Gareth Edwards on Rogue One. He also did Dune and the Batman. And that it's absolutely a stunning, gorgeous movie. Most of the movie takes place in Asia, and the landscape is showcased so well at an amazing scale. I was in awe from the visual images within this movie. And then you look at the score from Hans Zimmer, who is an iconic composer, he did Interstellar, Dune, Inception. It's up there with some of his best work off the top of my head. I, I loved this. It brought out tons of auxiliary emotions from these scenes when you weren't getting it from some other aspects of it. The score alone really set the tone in this movie. 
And then the final technical aspect that really stood out to me is the visual effects. Both practical and digital are at an elite level. The AI robots are so lifelike and real. These massive military contraptions are stunning. It's really great effects that I can't say enough good things about the technical aspects. What's unfortunate is when there are moments, as I mentioned, that the story, the foundation of it feels very deep and impactful and others where it truly just falls flat, especially in the character's dialogue. Some aspects that are strong are the adult, unwilling adult and child pairing in relationship. Uh, It's a storyline within this movie that is I think very well done and progresses well and the character's development within that is very strong. The character's knowledge, not so strong. The way that they learn more to further the plot, not great. Great, the influence the U.S. military has and how it's almost... The U.S. military and army is the bad guy in this movie. And it's very indicative of how the military has been known to act at times throughout the U.S.'s history is very interesting and unique and a great story device, but the characters within the U.S. military fall very flat and aren't well-developed or aren't good villains and have some truly bad, corny dialogue. For every good, there's something bad that drags it down. And it's really unfortunate because I'm just so like at a loss for what to really think about this movie. I have written a rating down that I think feels accurate, but as I talk about it and I talk about all the technical achievements, that feels too low. And then I think about what I was thinking about during the movie and how I laughed out loud at certain points of dialogue, and I think that's exactly right. It's perfect. When I saw this with Abby and when we walked out of the movie – she was blown away. She was ready to give the movie a 9 out of 10, and I was kind of iffy on that. I understood where her rating was coming from, and I wanted it to be that. In my heart, I felt the movie could have easily been a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. It had the potential. But as we talked about it, and as I explained some of my issues with it, she started to come back down to earth and agree with me because there are just so many issues and almost plot holes that when you really think about it and pay attention, the movie does fall flat. That's a lot of information I've dumped on this one movie because it's a really interesting thought experiment of what it could have been. And I'm excited to see what Gareth Edwards does next. And I hope it's sci-fi and I hope he develops a writing team or finds something to fit that last piece together because I think it'll be an iconic movie. This movie, despite its flaws, is 100% worth seeing in theaters for a visual and sound aspect alone. I think you'll have a very different experience watching this in theaters than you would watching it at home. I also think while this movie is currently being panned critically, I think it'll be looked back on very fondly because of the technical aspects it does so, so well. We'll see if I'm right. It'll be years before we know, but I I think the movie has a lot of good. Unfortunately, those points that are dragging it down are going to bring my rating down. My rating for the creator comes to a 7.2 out of 10. 
I hate to give it that low of a rating because it could have easily hit that nine mark. It could have easily been in my top five movies of the year. It probably could have easily spawned a franchise or a prequel or more story around it because of how much potential it had. It's just wasted potential, and that makes me sad. But I still enjoyed my time with it. It was gorgeous to see. I believe I saw it in Dolby. It was gorgeous in Dolby. That 7.2 out of 10 does feel accurate when push comes to shove at the end of things. I am going to run through some quick box office updates as I feel I haven't talked about the box office. So let's talk about a bunch of movies I've previously reviewed on previous episodes. Blue Beetle has essentially finished its box office run at $128 million worldwide. This is the lowest ever for the DC Extended Universe, even lower than Wonder Woman 1984, which was released mid-pandemic and straight to HBO Max. Really begs the question of what's next for DC. Aquaman 2 is in December. It'll be very interesting to see if it does better. I think it will because Jason Momoa just has that it factor that puts butts in seats, but how much better will it do? The DC has lost almost all, all goodwill with movie fans. A Hunting in Venice is sitting at $94 million worldwide on a $60 million budget. I don't know if that's enough to warrant a fourth movie in this Kenneth Branagh, Hercule Poirot franchise. I think it is a really good movie. I think it will really good comparatively to Death on the Nile, but I don't think it's great. So I'm very curious to see where it goes. The Equalizer 3, I talked about this movie, sitting at $167 million on a $70 million budget. If I'm the studio for this movie, I am actually thrilled with that number. When you look post-pandemic, numbers are going to be a little bit lower. The first Equalizer did $192 million. The second Equalizer did $190 million. This could reach that number and keep a nice even number. It's just short of that two and a half times multiplier that makes a movie profitable after not just production costs, but marketing costs and everything is said and done. Equalizer, I would be happy with that return. Gran Turismo, $60 million budget. It's sitting at $116 million worldwide. I think that's a big win for Sony when you look at this movie is essentially a marketing piece for Sony, PlayStation, Gran Turismo, the simulator, and Nissan, the car. I I would be thrilled with that despite it being short of that 2.5x multiplier. Gran Turismo surprised me when I saw it in theaters, and I think this is an appropriate box office return. And it will do a little bit more, but it's approaching the end of its run. Let's talk about two movies I have not seen and are on two very different ends of the spectrum. First, a massive financial success, Saw X, the 10th movie in a franchise, carrying just a $13 million budget, has seen $57 million worldwide. It's over four times its budget. This movie is very profitable. It makes sense why they continue to make Saw movies and will likely continue to. On the other end, you have the fourth movie of the Expendables franchise. $46 million worldwide on a massive $100 million budget. Not great. It's Maybe this movie will do well on streaming and video on demand and any other form of post-theatrical release. Right now, it's not looking pretty. It's looking like a huge loss. Talked about the creator. Let's dive into that box office a little bit. Unfortunately, it is carrying an $80 million budget. 
and it's only brought in $63 million worldwide so far. This is an interesting one for me because I'm very curious as to why it isn't getting that financial return. Maybe general audiences just aren't interested in a big sci-fi epic at this point if it's not attached to James Cameron and Avatar in a massive weight. Maybe it's because the movie has not been well-received critically and with poor word of mouth, people aren't going to see it. Whatever it may be, I think there is a good aspect to this in that the movie is technically great, like I mentioned, and an $80 million budget for a sci-fi movie like this is really not bad. When you look at an action movie like The Expendables carrying $100 million or DC and Marvel easily hitting $200 million, $80 million is great. It shows a movie can be made really well and look really good below that $100 million mark. I think a lot of studios will be looking at what the creator did to try and bring their production costs down. And finally, another interesting thought experiment here. Uh, the Exorcist Believer, the latest edition of the Exorcist franchise, it's only been out for a week. It's sitting at $50 million on a $30 million budget. Only being out a week, you may be thinking, that's not bad. This is looking pretty good. Maybe they won't hit that 2.5x, but they are over their production budget, which is good. The unfortunate thing is uh, Universal Peacock purchased the distribution rights to the Exorcist franchise for a whopping $400 million. And with the Exorcist coming out this week, or last week, you have Taylor Swift this week, then you have Martin Scorsese, and a number of movies before you hit Hunger Games and Marvel. I don't think this movie is getting the return they would like to see across the board. We'll see. We'll see if it's able to hold out within the Halloween season. I will be talking about The Exorcist Believer at some point when I do my Halloween episode, likely before Halloween, but you'll have to wait to hear that review. And that's all I have for today's episode. A little box office update, an unfortunate update on the actor strike. My free advertisement for AMCA list, I'll always push that. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, at Sidekick Critic. If I get really pertinent news on a strike change, which I think is very unlikely for the next month, but I hope to see, you'll see it there first. I will make sure I post it almost immediately. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a movie tonight, which I'm excited about. I'll I'm seeing Taylor Swift this weekend, so you know I will be talking about that next week, which is very exciting. I was fortunate enough to have seen the concert, so I'm hearing great things about the movie too. I cannot wait. And that is all I have today. Thank you for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. This has been the Sidekick Critic Podcast. See you next time.